have our our fourth, fifth, and sixth graders in with us this morning for worship. They're not leaving because they're mad. Uh, but they're going to go to their class to get to join us for worship now, and I rejoice in that. Um, always loved it. I think what's good for the goose is good for the gander, right? And uh, what's good for the gander is good for the goose. And so I think there ought to be a blending of that together, amen? And uh, thank God for our children's program and the work that goes on there and uh, all the effort that goes into that. And it's so good to see our young people worshiping with us this morning. Before we get into the message this morning, I just wanted to take a moment of uh, just kind of a FYI and pastoral uh, word to you before we get into the sermon. Um, a year and a half ago, of course, things turned upside down as far as how we did everything. And we've gone through a, a good deal of change. One of the things that have changed that hasn't come back, and that is passing an offering plate. We don't do that. And uh, I actually kind of like the fact that we don't do it uh, because it takes that moment out of the, the life of the service. Give us a little more time for what we're really here for. Uh, although I do think that giving is a part of our acts of worship. And, but here's the thing I've seen. God's people give, and uh, that's what they do. And God has met the needs through your giving and faithfully supplying that. We've seen that in the general fund. Uh, it's just made steady progress forward. Um, and thanking God for that blessing. Um, meeting budget has not been a problem this year. And we thank God for that week in and week out. And uh, so we're just so thankful for God's manifold blessing. Uh, we understand this. God is good when, when the blessings abound, and God is good when we're in slim times. Uh, we give him praise on both ends of that because God is faithful. And uh, Paul said we know how to be satisfied when we're low, and we know how to be thankful when we abound, and we want to be on both ends of that. Uh, another means is our missions giving, and we mentioned last week about how that our missions giving has abounded as well. We've been able to bless our missionaries outside the doors of this church. And just as an FYI, anything that comes in designated to missions leaves the doors of our church. We don't put one penny for administrative expenses on that. Nothing comes to this church. It all goes outside the doors of this church. We send it to missionaries uh, either overseas or around the United States to bless them and the work that they're doing to get the gospel to places that we can't go on a weekly basis. But one of the areas by not passing the plate that has changed a little bit is our missions Christmas offering. And what we would do every year is we would take all of the change that came in the offering plate all year long and we would just put that into a special fund and then gift that to our missionaries at, at Christmas time each year. And right now we're not passing the plates and the amount of change that has come in has gone way down. And so the means of giving right now is we have plates at the back doors so you can put your money in there. If you choose to give in person, you can do that. Uh, or you can also give online. And many of you uh, have chosen to give online. Uh, but they don't, they don't record pennies and dimes and nickels in that way. Uh, and so we don't get that loose change offering anymore. But we want to make sure we're still blessing our missionaries when it comes to Christmas. And so just as a, a thought, as a side note, if you would like to give directly to our missionaries' Christmas offering, you can designate that. And so maybe over the next couple of weeks, you say, hey, pastor, I'd like to give $20, $25, $30. Uh, what would have been in loose change, I'll just give it at one time to our missionaries Christmas. You can designate that either through the app or in a check as you put it here in the offering plate or on an envelope and let us know, hey, that's going to missionary Christmas and then we'll be able to use that to bless our missionaries here in the next several weeks. Uh, we do need to send that out sometime by the first or second week of November so it gets to them before Christmas because uh, for many of them there's a lag getting it across uh, to where they are and the cycle in which they receive that. And so if the Lord would lay it upon your heart to help in that way, you can designate your money so, and we'll make sure it gets to them. Thank you so much for your faithfulness to give, and I know God is blessing 
uh, the work here and around the world through that giving. Colossians chapter number 3, and uh, we're going to begin reading in verse number 1, and we'll read down through verse number 4 of Colossians 3, and then we'll pray after we finish reading together. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let's pray together. Father, we ask you to add your blessing now to the reading of the word of God. Lord, thank you for every part of the service that we've heard already. The reading of scripture together that we've enjoyed Uh, the time of worship together, and then, Lord, now as we open the text of Scripture, that, Father, you would be magnified. And, Father, we are under no pretenses this morning. We do not need to hear the wisdom of a man. We do not need to hear the philosophy of men. But, Father, we need to hear the Word of God. And, Lord, we believe that when the Word of God is truly preached, the voice of God is heard. And, Lord, we ask that to be heard this morning through the preaching of your Word to your people. Holy Spirit, do a work that I cannot do, and that is drive the truth of your word into the hearts of the people. And it's in the precious name of Jesus we ask it. Amen. We have worked now for the last 17 weeks through chapters 1 and 2 of Colossians. And just a little over 17 weeks, we've gone through and unpacked it. I did not expect it to go 17 weeks to get through all of that. But man, it's been a rich journey through these 17 weeks in Colossians and seeing all that has been unpacked for us. And now we're about to open chapter number 3, and chapter number 3 is going to be, um, and chapter 3 and 4 both are going to be a little more, um, what we would say, uh, applicational to the life of a believer. We're going to give you a little more, hey, this is what we ought to do in light of what we are and who we are in Christ. But never separate in your mind the the commands of chapters 3 and 4 from the motive and the standing of chapter 1 and 2. It is chapter 1 and 2 that is going to drive how we behave in chapter 3 and 4. And that's what we're leaning into uh, this morning as we step into that. We want to be reminded that we, we're not leaving chapter 1 and 2. Because there's no way you can accomplish the work of Christian life apart from the truth of the gospel. It is the gospel that we've unpacked over and over again in chapter 1 and 2 that drives this. Um, We have seen Christ is the answer. He's the answer to any question. Somebody said Jesus is the answer, and somebody else wrote, well, what's the question? And they responded, it doesn't matter. Uh, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer to all the questions that we would ask about life, all the questions we would ask about philosophy, all the questions we'd ask about controlling the flesh. Jesus Christ is is the answer. And so we've been warned away from the danger of man's tradition and philosophy as finding our hope in those things. And that warning, I want to just review it with you if we could before we open chapter number three. Look if you would in chapter one, verses 15, and we'll read down through verse number 19. And just just follow with me as we read this. And let's be reminded of what we've seen about Jesus Christ. He is the image, verse number 15, of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And God's people said, I mean, that right there ought to stir you up. 
Then when we read that, look what he says in verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, uh, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And, and this, is the, this is the beginning, before we go into chapter number 3, of understanding the, the whole understanding of who Christ is, that he is preeminent, he's above all things. Now look what he says in chapter number 2, verse number 13. And you who were dead in trespasses and uncircumcision in your flesh, God made alive together with him, Christ, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. Now, if that doesn't stir you up, we used to say down in Georgia, if that doesn't light your fire, your wood's wet. Something's wrong. That's good stuff right there, guys. Jesus Christ is preeminent over all things, and that is the starting point of how we walk into chapter number three. You can't walk into chapter three with leaving this behind. You've got to have this in full view. So chapter three opens with the so what or now what are we going to do in light of this argument that we've made? You see, if all of man's wisdom and philosophy is powerless against the flesh, and we are dead to them also, we're dead to men's philosophy, we're dead to men's traditions, then we have to ask the question, what has the power to subdue this old nature? How do we put to death what is earthly? Now look what he says in Colossians chapter number 2, in the last verse of verse number 23. He said these, talking about traditions, talking about human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So if philosophy and man's wisdom and legalism and asceticism, if those things can't stop the indulgence of the flesh, it begs the question, what can? What can stop the indulgence of the flesh? What is it that we have that would deal with this whole sinful nature that we have inside of us? Look at verse number 5 of chapter 3. He gives us the command, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. But then the ask the question, how? How do we put this to death? And what we're speaking of here is literally the idea of progressive sanctification. It's that we are growing more like Christ the longer we live in Christ, but we want to see how it lays out. And this morning, what I want to do is lay the groundwork for how we put these things to death. And then next week, we come back and we start talking about, on a practical sense, how do we put to death the things of this flesh? the things of this earth, the things that come up and grab a hold of us. You see, we know we have been made new in Christ, but how do we live this out without relying upon man's traditions, without relying upon a philosophy, without relying upon some kind of legalistic law? And those of us that maybe grew up with that kind of rigid behavior, regardless of what your religious title was or denomination that you were in, many of us have come out of a background of rigid rules that were going to somehow or another make us holy. And what we're finding out is that rules don't make people holy, it is Jesus that makes somebody holy. 
He's the one that does the work in us, and only he can do that work through us. And as we come out of that, we, we know we, we've been made alive, but aren't we tempted to some point just go back to the black and white of the law? Aren't we tempted? It would just be easier if we just went back and we made a bunch of rules and said, look, good Christians don't do these things. Good Christians always do these things. So as long as we check these boxes, we can call ourselves good Christians. And just like the Pharisees, we'll raise the bar so high that we can easily walk under it. And we never do cross the bar. We never can scale the wall we made. We just slip underneath the law and the law no longer has effect on us. Because the Pharisees are walking around and they're preaching all kinds of laws about divorce and yet the whole time they're hiding hearts of adultery. They're concerned about how they wash their hands and yet they're devouring widows' houses. They're stealing, they're lying, and they're covering it all up saying they've checked the boxes off. And so then man craves the absoluteness of tradition. It would just be easier sometimes to say we, we just don't do that. Why? We just don't do that. And leaving it there doesn't motivate us to grow. And by the way, if we don't have a clear why of why we do what we do, we won't long do what we do. What we do will cease to exist. It will cease to be done. Man craves the absolutism of tradition. We, we just don't do that, maybe we would say. All the while we lose sight of why we do what we do. So then we walk into this idea of progressive sanctification. So I accepted Christ as my Savior. Wouldn't it be nice that we had just like the zap religion? And here's the zap religion. You accept Jesus Christ as your Savior and zap, you love your neighbor. You know, you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior and zap, you never argue with anybody ever again. That would be a wonderful thing. Bitterness is gone. Unforgiveness is gone. All the baggage we carry from past relationships is all gone because, hey, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior and zap, it's over with. Now, that'd be wonderful, wouldn't it? Kids would never argue with their brothers and sisters again. Moms would never get mad at kids for arguing with brothers and sisters. Dads would never get mad at moms for getting mad at uh, the kids for arguing with brothers and sisters. You know, it, just, it, would, it would all be just perfect harmony then. But the reality is that's not the way it works. The fact is, the day you accepted Christ as your Savior, when I come to faith in Christ, I now have the power to overcome besetting sin, but there is still a process of overcoming that besetting sin. It's learning to walk out the power that has been given me in Christ. It is not a one and done thing. I think there's a tale of two extremes that also falls in this idea of sanctification. It's that for every mile of road, there's two miles of ditch on either side. That we have error on either side of truth. The one error is over here on this side, and it's a hyper-spiritual error, I think. And it's, it's a mistake, but it sounds very spiritual. Well, here's the thing. I can't sanctify myself. How many of you agree with that? Amen? Yeah? Um, I can't sanctify myself, so I'm just going to let go and let God. I'm not going to worry about my behavior. Eventually, Jesus will change it. And so I let go and let God, and God will work in me, and he'll make it happen. And the fact is, that is not what we're called to sanctification by. It is only Christ that can do this work in me. Well, then the other side of that road over here is this idea over here. Well, no, here's the deal. You've got to live holy, and if you don't live holy, it's your fault. So pull yourself up, shake yourself off, and do right. You know better. And now all the responsibility is on you. And we, what we want to do is we want to live in one of those two extremes. Well, it's all up to God to do the work. It's all up to me to do the work. 
pull yourself up by your old bootstraps kind of thing. Do we even know what bootstraps are anymore? Um, it, when I grew up, I watched Little House on the Prairie, and Charles Ingalls had bootstraps. But I didn't know what they were for until I got my own pair of boots. Uh, they're helping you pull your boots on. You stick your fingers in there, grab a hold of them, pull them on. But the idea is that somehow we can reach down and pick ourselves up by our own energy and our own force. You can't do it. And by the way, I think both sides of this live in great frustration because it is not one or the other, but it's both and. If you ask the Apostle Paul, Paul, who's doing the work of sanctification in you? Is it Jesus Christ or is it you? And Paul would have said, yes. It is a work together. For some reason, God has organized this that you and I, through the empowering Spirit of God, get to obey what we couldn't, could not before obey. Now we can obey. Because he empowers us to obey. And so what does he say? He says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so we see both of these things are laboring together to accomplish the work of Christ in us and seeing Christ manifest. So it's the tale of two extremes. So then what is our motive? Now, all this is introduction, so bear with me for one more moment before we get into chapter 3. I think error, mistake, falsehood is around the corner when my motive to do what I do is to have God please with me. When my motive is for me to stand over here and say, God, I want you to see what I'm doing so you'll be happy with me. How many of you feel that at times? Yeah. I want God to be pleased with me. And this motive is a wrong motive. You, you, I, I found this to be the case in my own life and even in my marriage. I don't always have the right motive for cleaning the house. Men, come on, you're leaving me hanging here. You're just like standing there like, yeah, well, we do, you know. Because um, as soon as you'll be gone away maybe for a, overnight or something on occasion, it's happened and... I remember early on when the kids were real little, uh, you know, I'd always recruit them to help me clean the house before mom get back. Now, it's wonderful because I can open my iPhone and see how far away she is. Um, 45 minutes, just enough time to get the house straightened up. And she'll never find this for at least a week and she'll think one of the kids put it in the closet. So, um, and I, so I, I can start cleaning the house and get it all ready up. And the, the problem with my motivation is so often is what I was doing is I really wasn't so interested in having my wife be blessed as I am my wife being happy with me. And see, what I wanted her, her to be pleased with me. You see, and the desire for God or someone to be pleased with us is a desire for worship. And I want to be worshiped. And this is the dangerous desire of man, doing what we do so that God will be pleased with us. When we're doing that, we're not seeking God's glory, we're seeking our glory. Now, you say, what's the difference then, Pastor? Victory is present when I do what I do because I am so pleased with God. When I am satisfied with who He is, I'm pleased with who He is, and now I live in a different way, not so that I'll measure up to who He is, but because I'm so satisfied in who He is. I see him for who he is. I see him high and lifted up. I see the cross in full view. I see the resurrection. And man, what a God. And I can worship that. And it's something that you want to tell people about when you see that grandeur. 
last week, we, or this last Thursday night and Friday uh, all day, my son and I went to the Manistee River up to about three and a half hours. And by the way, Michigan is the most beautiful state that I've ever lived in. It's just gorgeous. I can't get over Michigan. And just really enjoying seeing the beauty of this. And what I'm finding is the people who've lived here all their life, you have no idea. Detroit and this area is not Michigan, okay? There's a lot other area out here, all right? I promise you. It is just gorgeous country. We went up the Manistee River, and uh, we hiked in about seven miles uh, onto the Manistee River, down the river there, and spent the night, and I wish I brought the picture in here to show you, but just gorgeous. You see this river, we're probably about 150 feet up off the water on a, on a ledge, and we're looking out over the water, and the river does a cutback, and it comes in and goes back out, and you're just standing there on the point of that cutback and just watching it. Of course, the sun set right there over top of the trees, just magnificent. And you can't help but just stand there and stare at it. You're just amazed with the beauty of it. And the same way I think we have to look at the goodness of God and be so pleased with who he is that it creates a motive within us to want to bring him glory. This is the starting point. And so as we walk into chapter number three, I want to use six words to outline our text this morning. If, in verses one and two, here are the words, if, seek, and set. If, seek, set. And then in chapter, or verses three and four, rather, have, is, and will. So if, seek, and set, let's get into it. First off, verse number one, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He said if. Now this is a condition of the first class is what they tell us in Robertson's word picture and it assumes that this is a true reality in the life of the people that he's talking to. He is not saying, well, if this happened to you, he's saying, since this happened, since this is a reality, here's what's to be worked out in your life, here's how it's to play out for the rest of your days. He said, so since you are there, now notice if you would in verse number uh, 20 of chapter 1, he says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world. Notice how he gives that if there, and notice the two things, that if you died, and now he says, if you have been raised. And what do we find? Do you know of anything that we do around here that pictures a death, a burial, and a resurrection? It's on both sides of the picture of baptism that is on display. If you have died with Christ to this world, and if you have been raised with Christ, and what does he say? And since you have died, and since you have been raised with Christ, now we're going to walk this out. Died to this world. Romans 6, 1 through 4 bears this out. He said we were buried with him in baptism. We were raised with him to walk in newness of life. That this is what we've been raised to. We've been raised to newness of life because of what Christ has done. So if, a condition of the first class, you, this is second person plural. Uh, and I love this because if I were down south, I would just say y'all. And that would describe what we mean by it, all right? Or if you're from other parts of the country, you say yuns, or use guys. Uh, and there's all kinds of different ways that people say that. But the idea is the plural. It's including everybody that is a part of the faith. Everybody who is a believer is drawn into this net. If you then have been raised with Christ, if you then have been made one with him in this resurrection, and by the way, raised with Christ, our, now, our life now is wrapped up in his resurrection. And in his resurrection, we have life. By the way, only in Christ are we raised. There's no other means for resurrection. 
It's not as if you can, you know, say, well, I'm going to shop around for a better deal. There's nobody else on the market giving out resurrections, okay? Jesus is the only hope of resurrection. And what we see, I want to, I'm going to go back to Romans chapter number 6 very quick in verse number 8. If you want to turn there with me, you can. In verses 8 through 11, he said, we are raised with Christ. Our new life is wrapped up in his resurrection. In verse number 8 of chapter number 6, he said, now if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. How many believe you're going to be resurrected with Christ? How many believe you're alive in Christ today? Why? We have died with Christ. We're buried with Christ. We are raised with Christ. Verse number 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Mark that down, write it down, say amen to it. Christ will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Verse number 11, and here's the linchpin of it all, so you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider it to be the case. If we have been died with Christ, we are raised with him to walk in new life. We see the word if, now let's see the word seek. I'm back in Colossians in chapter number again if you have been raised with Christ seek the things that are above seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God see this word seek here has the idea of continual action it's seek and keep on seeking seek and keep on seeking it's the same action that we would find when Jesus says ask seek knock ask and keep on asking, seek and keep on seeking, knock and keep on knocking and it shall be opened unto you. It's the continual coming back to it over and over and over again. We seek and keep on seeking. A continual action, seeking and keeping on seeking. It's active pursuit. It's not something done by osmosis. It's not something that's just going to leak into us over time, but it is a pursuit that we're called to walk after. Seeking Christ. I had a buddy of mine in, in high school, he told me, he said, Hey, uh, hey I, I read something the other day that you can, you can record the answers to your test on a tape recorder. We, tape recorders, you guys know what those are, right? Uh, tape recorders. Um, tape recorder and then play it under your pillow at night while you go to sleep and you'll remember the answers to your test the next day. And I thought, that's great. I'm going to do that and I can just skip studying. And the score on my test revealed that that does not work, all right? Um, it's not going to happen that way. It's not by osmosis. And by the way, you can't seek Christ by just hope. You can't lay your Bible under your pillow at night and hope to be a better Christian the next morning. It's not going to work. He said, I want you to seek. I want you to do so. So not only is it a continual action with active pursuit, but I want you to see also as a choice of priority. Now, this is so very val- uh, valuable to us because Matthew 6, what does he say? He says, seek ye first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. It's a priority that we would seek him first, that we put him before all things and we run after him, that he is preeminent in every area of life, that we are seeking Christ first. You see, this idea of seeking him first We have to ask ourselves, what are our priorities? And by the way, I think this applies to a church, and it applies to a home, it applies to individuals. If you want to know what is a priority in your life, in my life, and in the church's life, 
You can check two things and pretty well see the priorities. Check your budget and check your schedule. And what you spend your time on and what we spend our money on reveals what our priorities are. And I challenge us to be mindful of those things. What, what do we do with our time? Where, what do we give the priorities to in our life? And by the way, it's why we have to stop and ask ourselves the question, are we seeking him in priority? This is where Christ is actually as, not just figurative, look what he says. He said he is above at the right hand where Jesus is. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. This is his position. Now, this is not, as I said, just not a figurative thing, but Hebrews chapter 12, 1 and 2 tells us that he is there seated at the right hand. He is at the right hand. And what does this right hand picture? What does this seated mean? What is going on there? What are we seeking there? The right hand, first off, reveals his power. Every time you see right hand used in the Bible, it's talking about his strength or his power. Now, that is not to be uh, giving a hard time to those who are left-handers here this morning, all right? Um, We're not trying to discriminate against you in any way. It's simply saying the majority is right-handed, and God gives us the picture of right hand being the strength, this predominant power. Jesus is seated at the place of preeminence and power next to his Father. So he's talking about his power. Where do we see his power displayed? Well, we've already unpacked it, haven't we? We've seen it displayed already in chapter number 2 and verse number 15. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He has the power, but not only do we see power, but also we see next that he is seated. Seated. Now what would that imply to us? A finished work. The work is done. Jesus, when he was on the cross, he declared, it is finished. The work was done. Death had been conquered. Death and hell and the grave were conquered. Three days later, as he came out of the grave, one person said, and maybe a little bit crashed, but on the day of the crucifixion, the check was signed, and three days later, it cleared the bank. That we know the fact that what he promised was there, and it came to life. Death was conquered. Victory has been won. We are victorious in Christ, and he is seated. He has finished his work. And by the way, he's seated there until he finishes making all of his enemies defeated, and the last enemy will be death. The victory's already been won. We're just playing out the battle right now. We're seeing it unfold before our very eyes. We are seated. And so we see not only his power, we see his finished work, his victory. What is he doing? Why there? He intercedes for us. This is what he's doing. Jesus Christ right now at the right hand of the Father is interceding on our behalf. He is pleading our cause before the Father. When the accuser would come and lay something to our account, he cannot do that because Jesus Christ is interceding on our behalf. He is ever interceding. Now, this is something that boggles my mind. Jesus is our high priest, right? He has atoned for our sins. And he's not a high priest like all the other high priests that we saw in past times. Because why? They had to atone for their own sins first. Jesus had no sins to atone for. And secondly, each of those high priests died. But Jesus' office of high priest will never be vacated because he serves after the power of an endless life. He ever intercedes. Now, what I want you to see about this, how wrapped up my salvation is in the intercessory work of Christ. If somehow or another, 
And this cannot happen because we've already seen that in the text. He cannot die. It was not possible that the death, the death could hold him. We see that in Peter's sermon in Acts. But if somehow or another Christ were to abdicate his role as intercessor, our salvation would be no more. That's how much it's wrapped up in Christ. When we look to Christ, we're understanding that he ever lives to intercede on our behalf and he continues to intercede for us. He pleads our cause and you and I, when we stand before God on the day of judgment, we will not claim any church membership, we will not claim baptism, we will not claim good works, we will simply point to the intercessory work of Christ that he died, was buried, rose again, and he is our high priest. His blood atones for our sin and will, so, will do so eternally. What a work that Christ is doing. So we see it is above at the right hand. He is interceding for us. Romans 8.34 tells us that he intercedes on our behalf. That we don't even know at times what we ought to pray for as we ought. And so we see not only seek but we see set. Now, some would say, well, this is a repeat for emphasis, and I would necessarily, wouldn't necessarily disagree, but I think there's a nuance in the repeat as well. He said, I want you to also seek what is above, but I want you to set your minds on the things that are above. The word set here has the implication of exercise the mind, to entrust, one, uh, to entrust one in, oneself in, to entertain or have an opinion, to regard it, to put our minds on it. And here in the Christian walk and in the battle, battlegrounds of the Christian world, the battleground is the mind. This is where our battleground is going to be. How you think matters. What you think matters. And this is why in chapter number one, he's so insistent on saying, I want you to be filled with the knowledge of God. I want you to be filled up with it. Susie's used this statement several times over the last several months, and it's been a challenge to me every time. But here, here's the statement. The heart cannot love what the, who the mind does not know. The heart cannot love who the mind does not know. We can't truly love who we don't know. We must have our mind filled with who God is if we are to love the God that we know. And as our minds are filled with him, we do battle on this mind. You see, we're not to be battlefield here. It's not just a passive but an active battle. He said, I want you to set I want you to regard this. I want you to exercise your mind. Set your mind on these things. You know, I mean, you, ever, you, know, you see somebody looking at you across the room, and they give you a dirty look, like some of you are doing me right now. Um, it, and so you get this dirty look, and the devil ever play a story with you? Like, oh, what are they upset with me about? And the fact is they weren't thinking about you. They're just thinking, man, why did I eat that second piece of pizza last night, you know? You weren't really on their mind at that moment. But you get that look from them and you play this whole narrative out of like they're upset with me and man, and you can't get that off your mind. How are we supposed to get that off our mind? How are we supposed to live a mind? And, and maybe it's your bitterness or unforgiveness that comes into our heart and it plagues our mind and it's on our mind and how do we get it out? And he says, I want you to set your mind on things above. You see, the Christian life is not just about getting rid of bad thoughts but it's actively pursuing the thoughts we should have. 
It's actively pursuing what we should be thinking on. What are we to be setting our mind on? What should we be putting in front of us? And I think what we should be putting in front of our minds on a regular basis, especially when sin begins to present itself, whether it be a thought of somebody's opinion of us, or it be bitterness or unforgiveness that rears up its head in our own heart, we should set our mind on the fact of the things that are above. What is above? Christ victorious. Christ in power. Christ interceding for us. And we set our mind on those things, not on the things of this earth and the frustrations of this earth. You see, and here's the thing. You can't, set your, you can't stop thinking about something by trying to stop thinking about it. You know, it'd be like if I had a large pink elephant sitting here in front of you. And I told you, don't think about a pink elephant. Don't think about it. Whatever you do, don't think about a pink elephant. Well, good luck. You're not going to not think about it. Because I'm telling you not to think about it. And, and that's the reality of it. That's like telling you, you want to keep your kids out of the cookie jar. You can't just walk around telling them not to think about the cookie jar all day long. It's not going to work. You've got to have their mind on something else. And the same way, we can't stop thinking about something by trying to stop thinking about it. We have to stop thinking about this by setting our minds on something bigger. Putting our mind on something more. And we lay our minds on what Christ has done, the victory he's won, the hope that we have in him. What does he mean here? To put it on the offense. If we could just put it in simple terms, I think he's saying put it on the calendar, put it in your budget. Make it a priority. Schedule it with your time and your talents and your treasures. Set your mind on these things. Someone taught me a long time ago, and it was helpful when they did. If you're going to walk with God consistently, you need two things. You need a time and a place. You need a time that you meet with God, and you need a place you meet with God. Now, I'm not here prescribing when that time for you ought to be or how long it should be. And I'm not telling you where that place should be or how it, how it should be set up. I'm just saying you need to have a location and a schedule where you're going to meet with God. And if you do that, you'll be more consistent at being with him. It's just simple as that. I mean, could you imagine if next week we said, hey, guys, before you leave today, I want to let you know we've changed the time of services next week, and we're not meeting in this location anymore. We'll see you guys later. How would we know where to meet? And, you know, you're like, well, we'd like to know where we're meeting at. I'm sorry, I'm not going to tell you. If you really want to be there, figure it out. You're just, we're leaving ourselves in a frustration. The same way with our walk with God, a time and a place, and I would challenge us to do it intentionally. Those of you that exercise, those of you that labor in those areas, those of you that have hobbies, you know how you do them consistently? You schedule it. You do it on purpose. And I think the same thing he's saying, set your mind on it. Have a time that you reset your mind. Isn't it good that we have a time that we know every week we're going to gather together with God's people and open the word of God and lift our voice and sing, and we do it by schedule, and we do it on purpose. And what are we doing? We're setting our minds on things that are above, not on things of this earth. And so we see if, seek, set. And then as we wrap it up, have, is, will. Have, verse number three, for you have died. Your life is hidden with God in Christ, or hidden with Christ in God. His death was our death. He took our place. My life is wrapped up, my death is wrapped up in his death. We have been placed in the hand of Christ, Christ's hand is in the Father. No man is able to pull me out of that, it's all wrapped up together. When Christ died for my sins, 
My death was sealed there. And now the law can no longer come after me because I died in Christ. The law has no power over me anymore. And surely I should have been the one that died. But he died in my place. And now the law is powerless to claim anything over me. The songwriter said, I should have been crucified. I should have suffered and died. I should have hung on the cross in disgrace. But Jesus, God's son, took my place. And here's the reality. He says this, I have died. That's past. This is the work that Christ has done. And then we run to the next word, and that is is. Look what he says. Uh, I want you to see the already and the, the already not yet and have. So we see have done, is is present tense, and then finally will is future tense. This is what will take place. I have died. Christ is my life. My life is hidden with Christ. We see this in chapter 3, verse 3 and 4. And then finally, we will appear with him. This is what's going on. And so what is this present tense that we are in right now is, look at verse number 3 again. He says, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. What does he mean? My life is wrapped up in Christ. It's, it's hidden in him. It's protected in him. My debt has been paid. My hope is secure. It's all wrapped up in Jesus Christ. And here's the thing I want you to see. is There is nothing that this world can take away from me that is eternal. Nothing. So then I need not fear anything on this side of eternity because it can't take anything eternal away from me. This is, this is the wonderful power of the gospel of understanding that I don't need this world to hold on so tightly to it. Because if, I, if man takes my possessions, takes my wealth, takes what I call my security, what takes my health, takes my physical life, they cannot change my relationship and they can't change my destination. I'm secure in who Christ is. This is where I stand. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is seeking sand. And I stand here firmly. It can't be taken from me. He said, Christ is our life. So our, our life is hidden with Christ. And then he says, Christ, who is your life. What do we mean, he is our life? Well, I, I think he definitely means he's the source of life. You know, then without, any, without him was not anything made that was made. In him was light, and the life was the light of men. And this, this is what we see in Christ, that he is the source of life. He's the sustainer of life. By him, all things hold together. But I think it's more than just the fact that he gives us life and he sustains life. But I think he, is consu- he should be the consuming figure in my existence. That without him, I am nothing. That he is everything. I'm not trying to fit Christ into my life. I'm not trying to get my schedule together this week and look at it and say, well, I got a lot going on this week. Hmm, I wonder where I could squeeze God in. No, I, I think what we ought to do is we ought to take our calendar and take our budget and clear them and say, God, here's my time. Here's my resources. What do you want to do with it? Christ, who is my life, what do you want to do with my time and my talent and my treasure? And here's the amazing thing. God can take our time and our talent and our treasure, and he can use it in multitudes of careers and multitudes of work this week, and he gets glory through all of them. But what we need to do is understand that our starting place is that I am not a preacher who spends time with Christ, but I am a Christ follower who preaches. 
See, what I do is secondary to who I am. Christ is my life. Christ is your life. It's not just, well, you know what, i got to struggle here, Pastor, and I, I think I need a little bit of Jesus to fix it. Well, you do need Jesus to fix your struggle, but I promise you this, he's not going to be your dietary supplement. He's not going to come along and just say, hey, I just want to add a little bit of Jesus over here and a little dab will do you or a little bit will get you by. That's not the way it works. But Christ is our consuming person that everything about our life is about him. He is all and in all and through all. That Christ would be everything. You see, we don't look at our life and ask, where does Christ fit in my world? But rather we look at Christ and say, where do I fit in my time and my talents and treasure to accomplish His glory and bring about His purpose? You see, we will forever struggle to move forward in this process of sanctification until we acknowledge that Christ is not part of who we are, but He is our life. You know, I, I don't, I really don't know how to even word this better to give you a window in it, but just maybe this will help just a little bit. We got to go up to the Manistee River this week, and so many beautiful sights. And I can't help but see something, and many of you have been there too when you've been away from your spouse, and you see something, and it's just, wow. And I can't tell you how many times on that trail I just stopped, hey, she's not here. <laughs> and I'd want to tell her about it, but she wasn't there. Because everything I see and enjoy I want to share with my bride and I think in just a small way, I think that's what it has to mean to mean that Christ is our life. That as we walk through the day, hey, did you see that? Oh, Lord, thank you for that. Lord, thank you for that parking space. I think you gave it to me. Lord, thank you for this sunrise tonight. You painted it. And he does so night after night. And the beauty of his handwriting is all over this world that we see. And we just talk to him as we go, and we enjoy the conversation. You see, it's not, it's not this rigid, harsh relationship, but Jesus is my friend. Jesus is the sweetest name I know, that we walk with him. And the songwriter says, and he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I'm his own. And he walks alongside of us. And there is a close relationship. And aren't you glad this morning that he's as close as the mention of his name? Christ, who is our life, will. This is the last word. Thank you for not saying amen there. Verse number four. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Two words that are wrapped up in this, when Christ, not if Christ. When Christ shall appear, Christ is coming again. He will return when he comes again. And by the way, he made the promise. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. The Bible tells us in Thessalonians, he said, at the last trump will sound. He said, he's coming again. That The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of our angel. And the dead in Christ will rise. We'll be called up together with him in the clouds. This is a reality. It is happening. Christ will return again 
This is the hope. This is, this is the middle of where we're at right now. We have died with Christ. We are living in Christ right now, and we're anticipating when Christ comes again. This is what we're looking for. And let me say this. This resurrection right here is just as sure as the first resurrection that happened over here. Jesus Christ is coming again. He is coming again. He is going to keep his word. He's coming. And when he says this, when he does come, we will appear with him in glory. I'm going to see him. You're going to see him. Do you understand that? We're going to see him face to face. We're going to come into the presence of Almighty God. You see, all that we've sung about for these many years now, every time we've lifted up our voice and we've sang about Jesus and we've talked about the cross and we've sang the songs on Christ, the solid rock I stand, and we've sang, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And we've sang these songs. One day we're going to stand before him. And I have to agree with the songwriter who says, I can only imagine I can only imagine what it's going to be like on that day when I stand before him. Will I be able to sing? Will I be able to shout? Or will I just say with Thomas when he saw him that first day in sight and he said, my Lord and my God. I don't know what that day is going to be like, but one day the one that we've preached about, the one day that we've studied, the one, day, the one we've talked about in our growth groups that we've sang about, we're going to see him face to face and faith will be sight. We'll see him face to face. And so when Christ, who is our life, appears, we'll also appear with him. That's our hope this morning. So we live right now in this area. We have died. We will be raised. But here's where we live. And as we walk into the weeks ahead, what we want to talk about is how we live victorious now. How do we live victorious today? And that's what leads us in the next verse, in verse number five, put to death, therefore, what is earthly. So come back next week, and we'll unpack that together, all right? Let's pray together. Father, we ask you to add your blessing to what has been said. Thank you for the patience of your people to hungrily wait on the word of God. We ask you, Father, that you bless our time. You will work in our midst. In Jesus' name. Let's stand to our feet. Mm-hmm.